And God spoke all these words. I'm reading from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, Go ahead and just camera on me, Eric. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You math people might notice that God's love is 250 to 350 times more strong than his assessment of sin. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. We're starting a new series on kingdom practices, or practicing the kingdom. A friend of mine who is not a follower of Jesus, should I say not yet? I don't know. I go back and forth. She's not a follower of Jesus. She asked me, when is the Bible metaphorical? And when is it not? We were talking about uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Trinity, why Christians refer to God as Father, all these things. And um, I, I, one of my very favorite things about talking with people that are not followers of Christ is I, I think I learn more from their questions about the Scripture. The other thing is I'm hoping that God will uh, call them to himself in love. But in the meantime, I can enjoy friendship with them. And she, she said, when, when is the Bible metaphorical? And I thought about it. Because something about the way she asked was different than the way that other people have asked me. And here's my uh, quick answer. When it invites or even demands or describes itself as metaphorical, we read it as metaphorical. So um, when God says don't lie, that's not a metaphor. That's use your words for truth. There's all sorts of things to say about that. But when Jesus says there's a kingdom that we receive by faith, that's a metaphor, which doesn't make it untrue, but we don't receive a castle and land and weapons and, I don't know. What we receive is what Paul describes in Romans 14 as righteousness, joy, and peace. He says that's the kingdom. And even reflecting some of the things I just read from the Ten Commandments given at Sinai in Exodus 20, and the reason I say that is because they're repeated in Deuteronomy 6. Um, wow, where was I going with that? Don't go down this rabbit trail. I don't even know which rabbit trail it is. Paul describes the kingdom as righteousness, joy, and peace in Romans 14. So that's a description that's not metaphorical of something that Jesus taught was metaphorical. And I'm calling these practices kingdom practices to, to, for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think many of us if you're newer to the faith, this does not apply to you. Perhaps it's not very true of the barn. My pushbacks are going to be from what I know about evangelicalism, 
um, as a whole, as one who grew up in Oklahoma, also lived in Colorado and Missouri and now in, in Connecticut for a time, and how I see, in my opinion, Christians oftentimes get this wrong. Kingdom practices are both individual and corporate. Everything that Rick led us through and Bridget and Bill led us through and, and our tech team, those are all kingdom practices. They're also individual. What's available to a, a follower of Christ is not only Sunday worship, but Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday leaning into enjoying the gifts of the kingdom. One of the reasons I'm calling them kingdom practices, one of the reasons I'm talking about Sunday morning and practices and what we're, I'm actually going to preach to you about is remembering and keeping the Sabbath, because there is still a Sabbath. I'll get into that in a minute. I'll even give a big new theological word for some of you. It'll be so much fun. You're going to love it. We sometimes think, maybe often think, that other people are more spiritual than us, and the Bible is so absurdly against that, it doesn't even answer it directly. Every kingdom practice is of the same value. And by kingdom practice, I mean something taught or modeled or described in the scriptures. They're all of equal value to you. None of them merit anything before God because the good news is Jesus, not us, and certainly not our spiritual practices. Right? 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 You're with me, right? But if all of these things are true, if Jesus is in fact who he says he is, then we have the opportunity to learn to enjoy him in increasing measure in this life. And so I want to encourage you that there are kingdom practices available to you. There may or may not be a sermon in this series on fasting. Some of you hate fasting. Some of you kind of like it for bad reasons. Some of you kind of like it for good reasons. Fasting is not more spiritual than singing. Fasting is not more spiritual than reading your Bible. Talking with another follower of Jesus about your heart and your story and the scriptures in your life is just as spiritual as knowledge. Did you know that? Do you really know that my prayers don't get to God faster than yours? I, used to, I like to use the bat phone analogy for how some of you ask me to pray. And others ask me to pray because I'm your friend. I love those requests. If I've answered you back in a text or an email like with the prayer, it's because I forget. I'm a human. Knowledge isn't more spiritual than prayer. Isn't more spiritual than singing. Isn't more spiritual than fasting. Isn't more spiritual than silence. Which is a incredibly important kingdom practice isn't more spiritual than centering prayer and if you think centering prayer sounds too zen read psalm 136 it's repetitive because for many of us repeating true things about god to our heart internally or externally or both is a delightful way of enjoying the kingdom that jesus purchased for us this is why, for, uh, since October, we have rotated the liturgy that the person leads us through, not in song and not in sermon or sacrament. So everything that we do on a Sunday morning is liturgical. So a, a church that does robes and they do the same thing every week, they're not more liturgical than us. Liturgical means, litur liturgy literally means the work of the people. So Rick led us in the work, but we're all doing it. 
Bill and Bridget led us in singing, but it's a move of the corporate body of Christ. And we're so thankful that the Holy Spirit knit us together before technology. And we're so thankful knowing that. Now it transcends. I don't know if that's the right word. It's not an invitation to tell me what the right word is. Just FYI. You can. But that's not why I say that. So on Sunday, what we have transitioned to, and, and these have, this has transitioned a lot in the seven years that I've been here, we rotate between confession in the middle of the service, prayers of the people, which is what Rick just led us in, prayers for healing, because there's healing available in this life. Not talking about medical, though it certainly could, that, that could happen also. I'm not talking about a cure. I'm talking about something profound and spiritual and internal. Interpretation and integration of what's happened to you to give you strength for today and confidence in the future. And we're using a very old practice of reading scripture slowly. In Latin, is often called Lectio Divina. Those are corporate kingdom practices that I hope we all begin practicing on Tuesdays also. Fridays, and Wednesdays, and Mondays, and Saturdays. Because there's much in us to be sanctified, healed, freed in this life. I put on Facebook last night, uh, whenever you hear someone who's a Christian say, if you would just, or you should just, and the responses are amazing. You should just pray more. You should just believe. You should just read your Bible. You should just trust God. You should just be patient. The middle of the preaching textbook that used to be the main preaching textbook at my seminary is called The Deadly Bees. There's a chapter on this. Don't ever tell anyone to be anything. It doesn't work. At best, they're just not going to take in the information. At worst, they're going to feel condescended to. I loved the responses. Because I learned from them, frankly. Because often what happens when someone gives the bad response, you should just be thankful anyway. You should just be more patient. Because that's ever worked. (laughs) You should just learn to listen to the Lord. And you should just know that this is part of his plan. Those of you that know me well know I hate the word just. So every instance I just gave of it is me being, I'm trying to be like sarcastic to make the point. When I hear someone say you should just have a quiet time, this is how I feel inside. That's what I hear them say when they say you should just read your Bible more. I'm the cat. And I heard it a lot growing up. I got this impression when I was in college that if I would read my Bible, specifically one chapter per day, and learn something, then I was a good Christian. And I got a lot of study out of my Bible that I remember, so I'm not ungrateful for that. But the way it was taught to me is not how the Scriptures teach it. The Scriptures expect your mind and your heart and your very being to all be engaged with the Holy Spirit and for you to learn to lean into that. And it is a move of mind and of affection and of your very being. It, it, there are, there's so much to learn, but there's also so much to engage in a feeling standpoint. So I don't know which practices are for you. And I want to say this. <laughs> I don't care very much about your comfort zone. And I don't know how many of you are taught it this way, but I remember, I'm going to say for a, maybe it started earlier. 
I started attending Christian school when I was in sixth grade and definitely heard messages like this for a long time, and maybe the only reason I don't anymore is because I don't listen to too many other preachers, not because they're not good, I just don't, I don't have time. I'm busy. But they would say, get out of your comfort zone. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to stretch yourself. And, I mean, somewhere in the factor, somewhere in the process of you learning and conversation and prayer and study and, and knowledge of self, it is important to notice which practices are easier for you and which ones are harder, but that's not the rule. God's not, it's karmic to say that. Do you realize that it's karmic to say that? It's that God wants you to get out of your comfort zone. How do you know? What's your comfort zone? What does that even mean? Anyway, you get the point, right? If you have a quiet time, and that's what you call it, and it's good for your heart and for your mind, terrific. But if you have a quiet time because someone convinced you that's what Christians do, there are practices available to you that will warm your heart and encourage your mind, and they're blessed and good ways of learning about God and enjoying the kingdom he purchased for you. Most often what I experience are extroverts needing to learn that a conversation about Jesus is a kingdom practice. Okay, I think I made the point. You good? We good? Clear? All right, thanks. And they begin with obedience. And this is where, like, on the one hand, I'm pushing back on how these things were taught to many of us. And on the other hand, I want to be clear. There is no more spiritual activity than following Jesus. And you're like, what does that mean? Are you using a metaphor? No. Read Matthew 5. Jesus describes things that happen to us every day and opportunities to follow him in them. In how we talk with others, what we don't call them. He talks about name-calling. You will be tempted sometime this day to call someone by a name. And if you're not anymore, like, hooray, you're free. That's awesome. Live as a free person. I'll talk about that more in, in just a second. But there is no more spiritual activity available to you than obedience to Jesus Christ and following him into the life of life he purchased for you. So when you resist the temptation to lie to your spouse about finance, that's a spiritual practice that's beautiful and lovely. Obedience motivated by faith and not fear. Obedience motivated by humility, not arrogance, which is overly concerned with being right. Obedience motivated by love and not an over-influence on duty is profoundly spiritual. A friend told me recently, by recently, I mean a year ago, that he, he was experimenting with drugs. He's not a member of the church, old friend, and he said it was the most spiritual experience that, I ever, that he ever had. And I started laughing. Because, no, I know what he means by that. He means it felt spiritual. But feeling spiritual and being spiritual are profoundly different things. A kingdom practice is something modeled and taught in the scriptures that engages you with the gospel of God. They're corporate and individual. They form us, and, and our service is supposed to be influenced and formed by them, and they're ours to practice throughout the rest of the week. They do have to do with learning. Jesus said, love God with all your mind. They do have to do with emotion. 
Jesus was an incredibly emotional person. You know this, right? Emotions aren't bad. They shouldn't control you, but they are part of you. Jesus was deeply moved twice in the Lazarus story. And that word is a very aggressive Greek word. If you've ever heard me, well, not ever. About a third of the time that I speak at a funeral, I talk about this. Jesus wept is the verse we memorized when someone made us memorize a verse because it's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Actually, the, the, most of the commandments are just two words in Hebrew. Anyway, stay on track. When it says Jesus wept, the word in the Greek is, prof- is also used to describe an angry, snorting war horse in battle, not in the Bible, in other Greek texts. Kingdom practices are moves of the mind. They're also moves of the emotions. And they're also moves of our very being. One thing that I think I'm noticing, not sure about this, if you have research on this, I'd be intrigued. The generation behind mine, I'm Gen X, has a category for anxiety that's good, so they don't want, they don't, they don't think it should be something to, that we can just ignore or spiritualize our way out of or whatever. But I do not see in them a hope to be healed of it like I do some other generations. Among other things, kingdom practices exist for our hearts to rest in the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying anything about medication. Medication is a good gift. It's part of common grace, meaning the grace of God that's available to all humans. Of course, it can be abused and manipulated, blah, 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 blah. But also, there is healing available in this life. And one of the most profound ways that we receive it is through practicing the kingdom engaging our minds and emotions with God. When I was getting ordained, um, I memorized much of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I want to read something to you, question 35, from the Westminster Confession of Faith Shorter Catechism. This is a church with a denomination and a theological backbone. What is sanctification, is the question. And the answer from 2 Thessalonians 2, Ephesians 4, Romans 6, and Romans 8. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God, and we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. If that doesn't sound good to you, I don't don't know what to say. I know that to a person who's not a follower of Christ, that's going to sound, at best, kind of weird. But to a follower of Christ, that's what, that's what John Eldridge calls the utter relief of holiness. I'm going to read it again. And the reason that we practice the kingdom is to receive this, in this life. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God and we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. If I read that too fast, Google it. Westminster, Shorter Catechism, question 35. When I was getting ordained, I had trouble memorizing those, so I had them on, to music by a singer named Holly Dutton. And I bought them on iTunes. And periodically, my wife, to this day, will get in the car 
and the car will decide in conjunction with the phone that she needs to hear Holly Dutton sing these songs. So my wife does not like the Shorter Catechism because she's heard Holly sing, What is sanctification? And then she sings the song. But those words are true. Westminster Shorter Catechism 35. Kingdom practices begin with obedience and rest. And this is one of the most profound challenges to me as your pastor. I'm now going to spend five minutes talking about one of my very favorite themes in the Bible, the Sabbath. You were like, oh yeah, I thought this sermon was about the Sabbath. It is. But ultimately, I want to convince you of what a kingdom practice is and why we do it before I offer one to you. Though in subsequent weeks, I'll assume you remember all this and go from there, which is great. Fine, right? We're fine. Okay. Kingdom practices begin with obedience and rest. This is the fourth commandment. This is the one time in the scriptures that it says that the very finger of God wrote these into stone. Commandment four is about worship. It's assuming all of the things stated in commandments one and two and three, worship God, no idols, carry up his name with honor, which doesn't mean don't cuss, though that's included. It means act like a follower of Christ all the time. And the fourth one is so mundane. Your animals are supposed to rest if they're work animals. Anyone visiting with you is supposed to rest. Do you realize the profound implications of that, the sojourner part? The fourth commandment is by far the most explicitly evangelistic commandment in the Ten Commandments. A sojourner is someone who comes from another country, and at the time this was uh, spoken and then read, they didn't know anything about God, except the reputation from the Exodus coming out of Egypt. So, someone's visiting from another country, and they see you resting because God said to. I said this before in sermons. Brendan Manning pointed this out. I read it 20 years ago, and I was so moved by it. Every way that we keep time is based upon how something spins. The sun, the earth around the sun, the earth spinning on its axis, and the moon around the earth loosely except the week. Why do we have a seven-day week that screws up all kinds of things, including the way we measure the church budget? I'll explain that some other time. Because God instituted the Sabbath before even the curse. God gives the Sabbath in Exodus 16 to people that don't have a home and are terrified of neighboring armies. So before even the Ten Commandments that I just read, the people of Israel were already led to rest and to worship and to pray and to play because he's good. And it's one of the most profound kingdom practices available to us to one day in seven remember with our words and lives and activity and how we eat that he is in control and we are not. Some of you have been taught that the Sabbath doesn't matter anymore, that it's, here's the theological term that I warned you I was going to teach you. Theological term for is something removed in the New Covenant from the Old is abrogation. 
or abrogate. So the theological way of saying this is, is the Sabbath abrogated by the New Testament? And the answer is no. Colossians 2.17, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, Jesus kept the Sabbath. Those are my proof texts. I even believe that there will be and is a Sabbath in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. I believe our worship will be different one day in seven. I believe our work in the new heavens and new earth, I don't know if there's work in heaven, I don't think so. There is work in the new heavens and new earth. I believe it will cease one day in seven, and the food will be different. And you're like, Matt's off his rocker. I don't think so. I can tell you more about this. Every time I had, every time I was given space on what to to study in seminary, like if they wanted me to write an exegetical paper, but they didn't tell me what to write it on, sometimes they did, you know, I would always write it on the Sabbath. We have such a fundamental opportunity to act like a Christian one day in seven because God is that good and kind and loving to tell us to rest. And there are all sorts of implications about that, about good work the other six days. What does it mean to rest? Uh, Marva Dawn, whose uh, quotes on Revelation I think you guys liked, also wrote a book on the Sabbath. It's not my favorite book on the Sabbath, but it's the easiest one to summarize. Sabbath is about cease, rest, pray, feast. And I would add play. And at different life stages, that looks different. Am I right, Lynn? But on Sunday, we worship corporately and celebrate who God is amongst friends. And then we do those five things. And I'm just going to let you fully apply that to your life. I'll give you some hints. There's a um, Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel, incredible writer, brilliant man. And he says it, he, he quotes some uh, rabbis, maybe some Talmud writers, I can't remember who, no, not Talmud writers, some rabbis who say, if you play a sport, don't keep score. I spoke on this over a decade ago to some youth, and they said, can we go shopping? And I said, sure, just don't buy anything, which they did not like. For my kids, it means for my kid that plays piano, she doesn't have to practice on Sunday. And that's because she doesn't currently love piano. At times, she has loved the piano so much that she plays songs on Sunday. Right now, she knows she doesn't have to practice. She has to practice the other six days. I make them food for every meal if I'm home on Sunday. They have to make their lunch on every other day of the week. And... You know, these things change, these things adapt. My kids are 12 and 14, and they're different than your kids. We want the day to be different. We want it to be delightful. Okay? Kingdom practices begin with obedience and rest as we receive the kingdom that Jesus purchased for us. Ah, Sorry, camera people. In Matthew chapter 13... Jesus spent some solid energy, incredible. Jesus had such an incredible mind. I don't think a day goes by in the world where the stories he told don't influence news, the news cycle because they were so profound. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, Jesus says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven, Jesus deliberately using a metaphor, 
is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's go back to the treasure in a field. Do you realize that Jesus is describing a man acting illegally to make the point? He does this in Luke 18 about prayer. Also, when Jesus presses in a point, we pay attention. There is an awareness and peace and healing of the kingdom that we could receive more in this life. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We go to food and drink and doom scrolling on our phone and we miss the opportunity to rest. Kingdom practices are moves of life and joy amidst a curse that would rob us of them. They're moves of resistance in a world that wants you to identify as a consumer and you're not. You do consume things, but you're not a consumer. You're a child of the day. You're a son or a daughter of the true king. Kingdom practices are moves of truth in a world full of lies. Kingdom practices are moves of looking at and receiving beauty in a world marred by sin. Kingdom practices are not the good news. The good news is Jesus. But if he is who he says he is, and there is news that changes everything, don't we want to be formed by that news? And you're like, yes, how? Take a day off. I want to read you poetry from Wendell Berry. David, I want to read an essay from David White. I once spoke for an hour and a half at a youth workers convention on this subject over a decade ago. There's so much I want, I want to tell you my favorite books, but I'm not going to because I think I made the point and we want the sermon to be of a certain length to help people receive it. And I know some of you wish I would go a lot longer and others of you think that those people are nuts. There's a kingdom available to you. I think you've heard me say that. It's already yours because of the work of Christ if you call him Lord. And our hearts can receive the rest of God. Yes, I mean it both ways. Through learning this kingdom practice of taking one day in seven to rest and pray and play and feast and worship. You pray with me? Jesus, we praise and thank you for all of your work, without which no practice will matter, or help, or heal, or solve. But because of your work, we can increasingly be sanctified, healed, and live as the free people we are. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to rest in you? Today, and tomorrow, and the day after that. Amen.